this morning before the message is going to be in number 332.
turn to the book of Matthew. We are reaching, little by little, the end of this book. We are in Matthew 27 this morning, and there are only 28 chapters in Matthew, which means we're not far away from moving into 1st and 2nd Corinthians. <laughs> what did you say? All I know is I heard sarcastic laughter. What did you say? Six more months. Six more months. Yeah, we're so close. We're nearly done. Matthew 27 and a large portion of Matthew 28 is primarily narrative. Matthew is passing on what happened as opposed to the development of theology. And even though there are deeply theological statements, even though we are in the very heart of what the gospel is at this point, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ lays at the very core of what the gospel is, but Matthew simply recites, just tells us the events that took place. Has anyone here ever run into anybody who has ever taken the moral high ground? That would be pretty much everybody in the room, I know. You, you've dealt with somebody who feels that they're just spiritually superior to you, and so they're going to tell you what they think of you. You're nodding way too vigorously, and you're pointing, which is not good. That's what Jesus is running into here. He's dealing with the the high and the mighty of the Jewish religion. And these people are so steeped in the law of Moses that they believe that they are defending God. They believe that they are defending the very religion that has been at the core of Judaism for the last 1,400 years. But they are also bringing in false witnesses, which is illegal. They are also having a a meeting in the middle of the night to condemn a man, which is illegal. They are also going to deliver him up to the Gentiles, which Jesus said was going to happen. He announced that that was what was going to occur, but even that, turning a prisoner of their own over to the Gentiles to have him killed, was in itself a questionable act of jurisprudence. And yet the whole time that they were doing this, they believed that they had the moral high ground. They believed that they were defending God in so doing. Now, one thing that I have emphasized for the last couple of weeks as we've been reading this part of Matthew is that it's very, very clear from all the evidence across the board that at every step of this successive series of events that Jesus is in complete control. At no point... Does he become a a pathetic creature? At no point is he just a victim of the Jews and the Romans. And in fact, Peter says in the book of Acts that Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the Jews, they were all gathered together to do whatsoever God's hand predetermined to be done. And so Peter turns all of these events over to God's absolute sovereignty And these things had to occur. They had to occur on this day, on this feast of this year. These things had to occur right in succession because if they didn't, there's absolutely no hope for Wolfgang. There's absolutely no hope for Kenneth. There's no hope for any of us. 
In fact, Paul develops his entire theology of the resurrection and says, if the resurrection isn't true, number one, we're false preachers because we're saying he raised. We're saying that he died and that he got up again. But then even more interestingly, even though Paul presupposes what would happen if the resurrection weren't true, he still assumes the presence of God, no matter what. If Jesus had gone back to heaven or had never come in the first place, that did not eliminate the reality that God exists because the next argument that he has is he says, we are of all men most miserable because we're all in our sins. God's still going to judge us. God still exists and he's still holy and he's still righteous and he's still going to judge us if it were not for the resurrection. So the resurrection lays at the very core of what we believe. And in order for someone to actually resurrect, they have to be actually dead. Now, I know that seems obvious, but if you go on the Internet, there are plenty of people arguing that Jesus didn't really die. There are a lot of theories, theories about how he just swooned or how his apostles had a a mass hallucination They hallucinated that he was dead, as if you put somebody who's not really dead into a tomb, as if you would uh, go and put burial spices on someone who's not really dead. The disciples believed he was dead. The Jews believed he was dead. The Gentiles believed he was dead. And he even said over and over, I'm going to be dead for three days, three nights, 72 actual hours. I'm going to lay in the tomb and then I'm going to get up again. I'll see you in Galilee. I'll be with you again. I'm coming back. And yet they just didn't understand what he was saying. It was prophesied. Isaiah talks about it at length. David even cites it in a messianic psalm that we're going to look at this morning. And Jesus even quoted that psalm from the cross so that there was no question that people would understand that this was prophesied to happen. Right now, everything you're seeing had to occur. So as we read through chapter 27, I don't want you to ever think, oh, the the Jews have the upper hand, or oh, the Gentiles have the upper hand, or... No, at every point along the line, Jesus is in complete control and God is doing what he predestined to occur. And never forget that because the end result of it is your salvation. And God predetermined that to exist. He determined what the end was going to be. He determined what the result was going to be. He determined what the methodology was going to be. And he determined when it was all going to happen. And as sure as Jesus actually gave his life and actually resurrected again, that's how sure it is that you are coming up out of your grave. That's how sure it is that you are going to end up in God's eternal presence. That's how sure it is that you can say today that you are saved. So the heart of this is very good news. And by the way, As the uh, Jews were holding this illegal council in the middle of the night, and as they were bringing in their false witnesses, as they were accomplishing the death of Jesus the very next day so that he would die on Passover, I'm going to ask the question that I've asked for many weeks now, how much free will did they have? Because they just did 
exactly what God determined they would do. And what they wanted. This is what they wanted to do, although they were quite determined not to kill him on Passover. They even said it, don't kill him on Passover. But it was determined by God that he would die on Passover. He had to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He had to die that day. So despite their best efforts, everything that God determined happened anyway. So let me just say as a general principle here that whatever God has determined for you, is what's going to come to pass. No matter how much you determine other things, no matter how much you decide other things, no matter how much you deny it, the truth is God's going to win. It's going to go his way. Okay, let's look at chapter 27. We're going to do a lot of reading this morning. The beginning of chapter 27 will sound familiar because we looked at it a few weeks ago when we were looking at the story of Judas and what became of him. But we'll read it again this morning and uh, remind ourselves. Verse number one of chapter 27, the book of Matthew. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Now, what you have to understand is they're living under Roman persecution at this moment. They're living under a Roman occupation at the moment. And so the Caesar has made sure that there are governors over particular areas, governors who are loyal to the Caesar, in order to keep any particular area of the Roman Empire under Rome's dominion, under Rome's control, and to squash any kind of rebellion, to hold down any kind of political uprising. And so one of the things that they've gotten Pilate involved in here is the idea that Jesus says he's a king. And that would be an insurrection. That would be rebellion against Caesar, because Caesar's king. Caesar's even God. And this one makes himself God and makes himself a king. Clearly, this is political insurrection. You really need to squash this fast. So they've taken him to Pilate, a Gentile. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. In other words, despite the fact that they gave him money in order to betray Jesus, now that he's come back feeling some remorse over it, they've said, oh, that has nothing to do with us. That whole making a deal for 30 pieces of silver? See, this is that moral high ground I'm talking about. Mm. Well, that's not our problem. That's your problem. Oh, you betrayed innocent blood? That's your problem. You deal with it. And so Judas, in his agony over this, threw the 30 pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. That's verse 5. And he went away and he hanged himself. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you so that he may sift you like wheat. And that phrase, so that he can sift you like wheat, is talking about a beating, is talking about separating, is talking about a sieve. It's talking about 
ultimately the destruction of who Peter is. If you have any question about what Satan can really do to a person, just read that. While he was under Satan's dominion, while he was under Satan's control, he couldn't wait to betray Jesus, especially for money. He did hold the bag. He was a thief. He did want the money. But now he realizes that Jesus has been condemned to die, which implies that it wasn't Judas's plan to have him die. Just stop him. Just slow him down. Or maybe even just cause him to become the king that we all believe he is. Some kind of political solution. But instead, he's condemned to die. And then Satan has sifted him, used him, done what he's going to do through him. And Judas feels remorse for what he's done. And he throws the 30 pieces of silver back into the temple. And he goes out and he hangs himself. And he dies. All of which, by the way is predicted in the scripture, all of which is prophesied. Even the price, the 30 pieces was prophesied. The fact that there would be somebody who would eat at the table with Jesus and then betray him, that's prophesied. Even the fact that the money that he threw down into the temple is ultimately going to be used to buy a potter's field is predicted. So again, every event that happened to Judas happened exactly as God determined it was going to be done. So here's what happened. He threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. This is now blood money. And so it's not right to put it in the temple treasury. Do you hear the moral high ground again? Mm. Clearly, we're very, very spiritual. Sure, we just caused a guy to hang himself. Sure, we're bringing in false witnesses. Sure, we're having a middle-of-the-night meeting. Sure, we're determined to kill this guy, but we still have the moral high ground here. We're still going to act like we're superior to everybody in the way that we deal with the blood money. But again, that was their determination because it was prophesied. The 30 pieces of silver had to go to a potter's field. So they, of their own free will, determined to buy a potter's field. And in so doing, they did exactly what God determined they were going to do. It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood and they counseled together and with the money they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then Matthew tells us, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. All of this is predicted. All of this is prophesied. Now, by the way, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that verse talking about Judas, but actually that's Zechariah 11. It's not Jeremiah And so people have pointed to that to say, oh, I found a mistake in the Bible. I have found an error. The Bible's not trustworthy. Clearly here it says Jeremiah and it means Zechariah. 
but you just have to know a little bit about Jewish custom. They used to bind their books, and they would refer to the bound books by the first book in that binding. And among the major prophets, the first book that was bound was the book of Jeremiah. So if you either didn't want to come up with the exact chapter and verse, since there weren't chapter and verses back then, but you just wanted to make reference to the prophets have said, you would say Jeremiah has said. And that was a reference to everything bound under the heading of Jeremiah. So actually, Matthew is exactly right. And the critics who love to point to that and say, oh, I found a mistake, have just proven that they don't know what they're talking about. So that takes us to new material. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now, of course, the words, it is as, are added by the translators. A more proper interpretation of that would just be, you said it. You're the one who just said it. You just called me king of the Jews. You've admitted who I am. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. Now, think about it for just a moment. If you're, oh, let's say, creator of everything... If you're um, Lord of glory, if you're um, the word who spoke everything into existence, and then people take the moral high ground and they accuse you unjustly and they bring in their false witnesses and they, aren't you going to defend yourself? We would. I would. My ego would be such that I'd go, you know what? I'm calling down angels. That's it. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm calling fire from heaven. I'm, I'm doing it. But Jesus didn't say a word in defense of himself. Why? Because he had to die. And with Jesus, words are things. And if he had defended himself, his defense would have stood. Because it would have been the word of truth. And if he had called down angels, they would have come. And if he had said, you know, forget this. Forget the whole salvation thing. I'm going back to heaven. Then none of us would have any hope. He had to die that very day. And so he knew the quickest way to get to Golgotha was to just let these people make their illegal, wrong-headed, false accusations against him and not say a word. So now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, it's as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear the many things they testify against you? This is Pilate's way of saying, answer them. Just say something in your own defense. And he wouldn't. In fact, we read that Pilate was actually amazed at Jesus because he wouldn't say anything. And he did not answer him, verse 14, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge so that the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. This was a way that Rome kind of kept the peace in Jerusalem, that every year at Passover, 
he would give up one person who was in bondage. He would say, all right, do you want one of your people back? Well, then you can have back this particular prisoner. But this time, he decided to give them a choice. Instead of Pilate deciding what prisoner to free, he found the worst of the worst. He found an insurrectionist. He found a murderer. And then there's this guy who's done nothing but good miracles and healing people and teaching about God. And he put them in front of the people and said, okay, you choose. Which one do you want? Pick one. And they pick the murderer. In other words, they did exactly what God determined they would do. Even when faced with a choice that would harm them, even when faced with the opportunity to bring a murderer back into their midst, they still chose the murderer rather than the prince of life. That's the kind of darkness that was in their minds, in their hearts. They preferred the murderer but they did exactly what God said. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, who is called Messiah, who is the Christ? For he knew that because of envy, the Jews had delivered Jesus up. And so Pilate's trying to make it an impossible choice. He knows that the Jews are just envious of Jesus. He knows that Jesus has a following. He's just trying to uh, give them an impossible choice. Who would you rather have, this notorious murderer, this insurrectionist, or Jesus, who he adds, is called the Christ, your own Messiah? And, of course, they all go, yeah, murderer, that's good, we'll take him. For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Pilate's wife even warned Pilate, Don't have anything to do with this guy. And God gave her a dream in the night that there was going to be a, a horror, there was going to be a terror, there was going to be a judgment, and it was all going to be about that guy. So she tells Pilate, look, just don't have anything to do with this guy. Back off this guy. So imagine Pilate's situation at this moment. He's got a crowd who's saying, crucify him and give us Barabbas. And he's got the Jewish leaders who he is tasked with keeping at bay, keeping calm, not causing any kind of insurrection. And then he's got his wife who's saying, let that guy go. So no matter which way Pilate turns, he's in trouble with somebody. So, verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, many years ago, I heard an interesting sermon, and I'm just going to pass this idea on to you. The name Barabbas at its root. Bar just means son of. Simon Bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Bar is son of. Abba is father. 
of us fathers. And so the particular message said that in Jesus' death, he substituted for the sons of the fathers, which is just interesting. I mean, he could have been named Dave. (laughs) He could have been Malcolm. He could have been anybody, but the particular thief that was brought forward was named sons of the fathers, which I think is interesting. So I just thought I'd throw that in for free. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, this is the very thing he's supposed to be quelling, is riots and uprisings, and a riot was starting, so he took water and he washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to that yourselves. So he satisfied his wife by washing his hands and saying, I have nothing to do with it. But he also made the proclamation, if you want him killed, go ahead and kill him. And so he kind of found himself in that neutral territory in the middle where he went there. The wife's happy. The crowd's happy. Everybody gets what they want. Wash my hands. I'm out. Mic drop. (laughs) Just seeing if you're listening. Just seeing if you're still here. But then notice this next statement. And all the people answered after he said to it, see see to it yourself, after he had said that. All of the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Oh, gosh. How do you say this? How do you say that the blood of the innocent man who's the very son of God, who might very well be Messiah from their perspective, how do you say his blood be on our children? Can you see now why Jesus on the cross would say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? Because they, Israelites, were saying, curse our children because of him. Count us as guilty of his blood. In fact, uh, somebody go look up Acts 5.28. Because there is a reference to this. Acts 5.28. Peter talking. This is after the apostles have been put in prison. And then an angel came in the night and let them loose. And they were teaching again in the synagogue. And And then Peter says, somebody got Acts 5.28? Who's got it? You got that, Wolf? Would you read it? Oh, you know you have to stand up and turn around so everyone can hear you. (laughs) I'm going to just go back just a hair. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they understood that the blood of Jesus, who is now resurrected, was upon the Israelites who said, his blood be on us, be on our children. And now again they take, I'm going to keep saying this, the moral high ground. And they say that when Peter and the apostles are preaching Jesus as raised, as resurrected, look what you're doing. You're trying to bring his blood on us. 
But they understood what they had said. They understood what they had done. They were guilty of the blood of Christ. It was only Christ's intercession, Christ saying, forgive them, that had any power to keep God from pouring out his wrath on the Israelites who killed his son. Mm. All the people answered and said, his blood be on us and be on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, at this point, Matthew continues talking about the Jewish mockery of Jesus. But he doesn't mention the fact that Jesus also went to see King Herod. We have to turn to Luke 23 to see that. So turn to Luke 23. Like I said, we're going to do a lot of reading this morning. Luke 23 is about the fact that Pilate, I think again in his effort to kind of wash his hands of all this, realizes that Jesus is a Galilean. And therefore, the king over him is this Edomian king, Herod Antipas, who's the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great who had built the temple. And so he says, send him to Herod. Let Herod figure this one out. It's another way to kind of get out from under this judgment that the people want, but his wife doesn't. Chapter 23 of the book of Luke. Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. See, there it is, the political insurrection. He's refusing to give taxes to Caesar. That's because when he took the coin, he said, whose inscription is on it? And everybody said, well, Caesar's inscription. And he said, well, then give to Caesar what Caesar's, which is fine with everybody. Every Roman in the place is happy with that answer. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. After all, everything belongs to Caesar. But then Jesus follows it up with, but give God what's God's. In other words, Caesar's not God. God is God. And give to him what is worth. Well, they turned it into, well, he refused to give taxes. Jesus never said, don't pay your taxes. Mm. And so they've turned this argument against him and saying that he was forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and that he was saying that he himself was Christ, was a king, which is true. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitude, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place, even to Jerusalem. But when Pilate heard that, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time. Why? Because he had been hearing about him and he was hoping to see some sign performed by him. In other words, do a miracle. Now that you're here, Show me something clever. Do something for me. Entertain me. He wasn't genuine about his desire to see Jesus. He had just heard these stories of Jesus doing great miracles, genuine miracles. 
And he thought, well, I can be entertained by that. So come on into my court and do something, which, of course, Jesus didn't do. And in fact, Jesus had gone around telling the Jews that a wicked and adulterous generation requires a sign to believe. And then he said, but no sign's going to be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of the resurrection is the only sign that's going to be given on which people are expected to believe. So these folks who are traveling all over the country claiming miracles and that they're going to do miraculous healings or growing legs or whatever they're going to do, And then they tell people, hey, believe, because I did a miracle. Jesus said that a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe. What you require is the Holy Spirit of God to believe. And then you will, despite yourself, believe every word that the Bible says, and you will believe that Jesus died and buried and resurrected, which is the gospel, and you will believe that. Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, And mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and then sent him back to Pilate. They were mocking the fact that Jesus was a king, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. And so they put a gorgeous robe on him and sent him back. Look at the last phrase. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. So now they're both mocking the same guy. They have a common enemy. And nothing unites people faster than a common enemy. And they both said, well, we need to squash this Jesus thing. And so they were friends from then on. So Jesus goes back to Pilate. He's got the gorgeous robe on. The soldiers, after that, we read, did such things as blindfolding him and then taking turns punching him in the face while mocking him and saying, if you're such a prophet, name who hit you. I mean, it was a horrible mockery. They ended up, as we're going to read in a moment, putting a a crown on him, but it was a crown of thorns so that it would cut into his skull. And they put this drapery around him. They put a reed in his hand like he was a king carrying his scepter. They were openly mocking him. And Pilate summoned, this is verse 13 of chapter 23 of Luke, and Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. For he sent him back to us. In other words, the indication is, had Herod found something, Herod himself would have put him to death or put him in prison or taken care. But Herod sent him back. So he didn't find anything either. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I will therefore punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. And so Pilate kind of said, well, he's taken up my time. You all want him punished. I'm going to punish him, but then I'm going to release him. I'm going to let him go. That was his intention. But they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent. And with loud voices, they were asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man that they were all asking for. That was Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their own will. Go back to the book of Matthew. We are going to pick up in Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. That's just his palace, his place where he stays. Jesus went into the praetorium and he gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they began to beat him over the head with the reed. By the way, he took all that. At any point, he could have fried every one of them. At any point, he could have had forget legions of angels all he needed was one he could have called down angels to defend him but he said nothing and he took the beating and he took the mockery he took the crown of thorns he took the punching he took the spitting he allowed himself to be absolutely debased in front of people whose lives and breath were in his hand and he did that I keep saying so that you could be saved When you think about what Jesus did, it's a whole lot more than, well, he was on the cross and, well, he was the sacrifice that God gave. He actually debased himself lower than any of you would be willing to be debased without a word. If you had some way to defend yourself and you were being beaten and mocked and spit on and scourged, you'd say something. Say, no, this isn't true. No, I didn't do that. No, I didn't. Beat Barabbas. Leave me alone. You'd, you'd say something. But he knew he had to be on the cross that day. And so he took all of it. If you want to know how bad the beatings were, after they had mocked him, verse 31, they took his robe off. And they put his garments on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. 
The implication being that Jesus could no longer bear his cross. The beatings were so bad. The blood, the crown of thorns. He could just no longer carry the chunk of wood through the streets of Jerusalem outside the gate to Golgotha. And so they put this Simon the Cyrene into service to carry Jesus' cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, but after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. The best explanation of that is probably the vinegar and gall was an anesthetic that they would typically give somebody who had just been nailed to a piece of wood. They would then anesthetize them and also help them die quicker. And Jesus, taking the full brunt of God's wrath on our behalf, when he found out, when he tasted it, when he realized that it was an anesthetic, refused it so that he would take the full punishment in your place. And by the way, if he took the full punishment in your place, how much punishment is left over for you? None. None, none whatsoever. I keep saying, we're saved. We're saved. And he saved us and he actively gave himself and he actively purposefully did these things so that we wouldn't ever be accounted to the wrath of God. Which is why Paul would say that we are not appointed to wrath. But he took it all. You're starting to get some feel for why Christianity is so important. Right. I mean, you've got to have this or you're going to encounter the wrath of God. But Jesus placed himself in between you and the wrath of God and... They took him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink, and when they had crucified him, they delivered up his garments among them, casting lots for his garments. Now, this is interesting on two counts. We also find out from the other gospel accounts that Jesus wore a particular kind of robe. It was typical For the Roman centurions, when they would crucify someone, they would take their clothing and they would rip the pieces of fabric and everybody would get a piece of fabric, which you could then use as a a patch or you could start building something on, but they would rip it. The reason that they cast lots for his robe rather than ripping it was because he was wearing what was called a seamless robe. It was woven all the way through from the top to the bottom. In fact, it was a fairly expensive robe. It was a fairly exclusive robe. And that's what he was wearing. So they, rather than tear that up, decided they would cast lots for it. But the other thing is that Psalm 22 says that they were going to cast lots for the robe of Jesus. So this again was predicted. This again was prophesied. You want to see it? Somebody turn to Psalm 22, 18. Now, Psalm 22 begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. And Jesus was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He referred to that particular psalm so that everyone would know I'm fulfilling what the prophet said. I am the son of David. David wrote about me. 
David prophesied what was going to happen to me. In fact, he even said that my robe was going to be gambled over. Who's got it? Psalm 22:18. Or are you all a little gun shy now because of Wolfgang? Because he had to stand and read? Are you a little slow to stand and read now? They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And for my clothing, they cast lots. How did David know that? That's such a little detail. That's such a minuscule thing. That's the kind of thing that most of us would never think, well, God's in that. You know, we've got God in the big things. We've got him in tsunamis and earthquakes. And we want God to be in charge of the big things. But we don't think of God as being in charge of whether or not people gamble. And yet, a thousand years before it happened, David wrote that. To identify the Messiah, the details had to happen. And the details count. This, again, is evidence that this is the word of God. Can you say anything right now for us, Thaddeus? Can you say anything that a thousand years from now is going to come true? No. And yet, there's no question about what time frame David lived. And there's no question about when he wrote the psalm. And there's no question about the the era of time, the thousand years that happened in between. And yet, that exact thing happened. I don't know any other book of any other respected, organized religion that works like that. Mm. It's why I'm so committed to the Bible. I don't know any other book that tells you a thousand years in advance what's going to happen. And then it happens to the T because God's in charge. So, we've got to keep going. <clears throat> And when they had crucified him, nailed him to a chunk of wood, they divided up his garments among them, casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put above his head the charge against him. This was typical. Remember that the Romans crucified thousands of people. Lots and lots of people were crucified. It continued... Up to and well past 70 A.D., there were thousands of people crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. So the crucifixion in and of itself is not that peculiar. It's who was being crucified that matters. And so they put above him his charge. So you could walk among the crucified people and you could look above them and you could read their charge. That's a murderer. That's an insurrectionist. That's a tax cheat. That's a, You could read. And above his head was written, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That was his charge. Turn with me for a moment to John 19. Keep your finger there in Matthew. We'll be right back. Turn to John 19 because John actually fills in a couple of blanks that Matthew didn't mention. Turn to John 19. I'm trying to get to verse 19, but we'll start at verse 16. So he, Pilate, then delivered him, Jesus, to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in the Hebrew is Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two other men one on either side. And Jesus, 
in the middle, in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And he wrote it in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. So he didn't just write it above his head. He wrote it in three languages so everybody could read it. If you're a Jew, you're going to read it in Hebrew. If you're a Greek-speaking Roman, you're going to read it in Greek. If you're a Roman who only speaks Latin, then you're going to read it in Latin. He made sure that the charge said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. Don't say that. Instead, say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Make it a charge. Make it he called himself king of the Jews. That will be adequate. But don't just write king of the Jews. So they even wanted something different than what Pilate wrote. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. He wouldn't change it. Back to Matthew. Verse 38. At that time, notice, at that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Notice the hypothetical there. Notice the, if you are the son of God, do something. If that sounds familiar, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because the very first thing that the serpent said to Eve was a hypothetical. Didn't God say, it's really kind of up to you? And that's the way that the cynics and the critics and the atheists work to this very day. They just kind of plant the seeds of doubt. You know, that was probably all borrowed from ancient Roman mythology. And you don't have to look it up. You don't have to question that. But Christianity is just, it's not believable. You know, the Bible was handled by a lot of people before it got to you. And they probably made a lot of changes to it. None of that's true. But they'll say that just to plant doubt. Mm. Just to plant doubt. So they said, if you are king of the Jews, if you are the son of God, well then prove it to us, just like Herod said. Prove it to us. Do a miracle. Come down from there. Sure, there's a nail in your feet. Sure, there's a nail in each hand. Just come down from there, and then we will believe you. And to this very day, there's still people saying, prove it. Prove your God. Prove your Christianity. Prove it. Show me a miracle. Do something spectacular. And yet Jesus didn't do any of that because he recognized that faith was going to come by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was going to come by Pentecost and these things had been determined before the foundation of the world. And so he's on the cross. They're wagging their heads. 
They're saying things to him like, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. I don't think they believed that he actually saved others. But they were saying, well, he claimed to have saved others and he can't save himself. There, ta-da, proof. It's all fake. Christianity's not true. If it were, he'd come down off there. They had no concept of what was really happening on that cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down off that cross, and then we shall believe him. Are you glad he didn't come down? Yes. I mean, he could have, couldn't he? He could have at any point, but he didn't, so that you could be saved. And despite the mockery, again, if it's you, if you're up there and you have the power to get down, and they're mocking you and saying, come on, come down from there, aren't you tempted to come down just to show them? (laughs) Just to come down and go, there, okay, all right, okay. Came down, showed you. They'd be freaking out and running for cover and... No, it's real. He didn't do any of that because faith isn't in physical evidence. Faith is in your spirit. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and then we shall believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him up now if he takes pleasure in him. For he has said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also, now notice this. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insults at him. Now here you've got guys who are dying. They're crucified to a piece of wood. They're going to be dead and still they take the time to mock the guy in the middle. Just kind of joining in with the crowd. Everybody seems to be against him. I think I'll mock him too. But in Matthew's account, we read that both robbers were mocking him. In fact, if you turn to Luke 23, I'm going to go there real quick. Luke 23, if you want to see it yourself. Luke 23, starting at verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Get yourself down from here and then get me down. And so they were both rebuking him. The one was rebuking him, saying, Get us down from here. And the other answered. Now remember that Matthew said they were both mocking him. But then the other answered, and this is verse 40, and rebuking the first one said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Look, he's dying on a cross, you're dying on a cross. This would be a good time to fear God. And yet you're mocking him. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me, When you come into your kingdom, which is very interesting language, 
This is a Jewish person who's being sacrificed on a cross. And what is his expectation where the kingdom is concerned? It's still coming. The kingdom is still coming. And when it comes, you're going to be the king. And when you come to your kingdom, where is he getting all of this? Well, it's all prophesied. It's all prophesied that he's going to rise again. It's all prophesied that he's David's greater son. It's all prophesied that he's going to sit on David's throne from Jerusalem, ruling over the kingdoms of the earth. And this guy went from mocking him to believing him in an instant. Is it worth pointing out that he didn't seem to know Calvinism? Or Arminianism? He didn't really have a deep theology. What he knew was the one thing that's essential. And I keep saying this over and over. He looked to the one who could save him. And so I tell people all the time, look, I love theology. I love large tomes of theology. I love all the finer details of theology. But in the end, if you boil it all down, I'm going to tell you, Josh, come to Jesus. Because if you can do that, you can be saved. I tell people all the time, look to him. If you know who to look to, the rest is available. The rest of the theology. The rest. Notice Jesus did not say to him, well, then get down and get baptized. And he did not say, well, go join a church. He did not say, get busy with your own works. He couldn't do anything. He's being crucified. But he knew who to look to. And in looking to Jesus and saying, have mercy on me, this is the response he got. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today salvation came to this man. This man was on a, on a cross. This man was being crucified. This man knew no depth of theology, but he knew Jesus. And he had a more sure word from Jesus than I've had my whole life. Jesus never said to me, today you'll be with me. I'm just believing that someday I will be. But knowing who to look to solved this man's problem. Go back to Matthew. Sorry, I'm going to read you a scripture before we get there. Okay, go ahead, because I need a drink. You do it. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, but the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon his name. Or whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No distinction between Jew and Greek. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Face to face. Yeah. And like I said before, I love all the theology. I love the depth and details of theology. I, I love all that. But when it comes right down to it, I want a gospel. Let me just say this clearly. I want a gospel that I can tell the smartest man on the planet and tell a Vietnam vet in a wheelchair and tell a person in the last throes of life. Mm. And I can tell any one of them, run to Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. So anyway, let's close up here. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were Casting the same insult at him. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell on the land until the ninth hour, three hours of darkness. There's been a great deal of speculation as to why there was this darkness. 
I personally feel that it was because God didn't allow humans to look on his son as he punished him. I, I think that the darkness came about as a result of God making sure that as he poured out his wrath on his son and his visage was marred more than any man, as Isaiah said, that it was strictly between the father and the son. There were no people getting involved here. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, that's Psalm 22.1. As a result of that, some people have speculated that he may have quoted the entire psalm while he was up there. Now, we have no record of that. That's speculation on the part of the people who say that. But he was clearly referring to that psalm. He quoted the first verse of that psalm so that people would recognize that this is what was predicted. And some of those who were standing by when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. They're still looking for a miracle. They want to see something. They can't imagine that this man racked in darkness they can't imagine that he wouldn't do something. If you have some power, if you have some ability, just do it. Get down from there. Don't take this punishment. And that's the way that all people think. Get out from under it. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and they appeared to many. And now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and they saw the things that were happening, they became very frightened and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Hmm. And many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom was Mary Magdalene, along with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, I would add probably the mother of Jesus, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's stop right there, because the next thing that happens is that Jesus is put into a borrowed tomb, and we will talk about that next week. Are you getting a sense of what he went through? All I'm trying to do is emphasize that there is so much more involved in the crucifixion of Christ than just a, a simple act. It was a complicated and a compound act. And it was the wrath of humans and the anger of humans followed by the wrath of God. It was a terrible and a horrific way to die. And that he willingly made himself the sacrificial lamb, I keep saying it over and over again, so that you could be saved. And he did that willingly on your behalf. So let me ask you one more question. Okay, Thaddeus and Christian are sitting over here together. So uh, 
somebody burst through the back door and they've got a gun. And they come through the door and they say, where's Thaddeus? <laughs> They're gunning for you. And Christian jumps in the way of the bullet. I know. I, see, he's doing exactly the right thing. How much do you love Christian for doing that? Christian saved your life. How much do you love him? Okay, well, you were going to die eternally. You were going to be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You were going to be judged by God and end up in the lake of fire. Horrific, horrific things were going to happen to you forever. And someone got in the way and took the bullet for you. How much do you love him? A great deal. Not as much as you should. The love of Jesus is what I'm shooting for this morning, for lack of a better adjective. But it's what I'm after this morning, that you recognize what he did for you and that you properly worship, and praise, and thank him for all that he did for you. You got it? got it? You would do it for him, and we barely even like him. So... <laughs> It's a joke. It's a joke. I know. We love Christian. I said he hypothetically took a bullet for you, and you put your arm around him. I'm just saying, love Christ for what he did for you, because he did it willingly, and he did it eternally. And that's really good news. Amen? Amen. Good. Any questions? Yes, sir. It's a complicated question, but I'm going to give you my best understanding of the answer. Because the Bible doesn't say, and then they were forgiven. But I start with the presupposition that if Jesus is praying to his father and asks him anything, that his father gives it to him. There is a kingdom coming. And the kingdom is going to have a king. It's going to be Jesus. And he's going to sit on David's throne. And David was the only king who ruled over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we read all the prophets who with one voice say that there's going to be a regathering of Israel at some point. And you couldn't have that. You couldn't have a reestablishment of Israel if in fact they were guilty nonstop and unforgiven. So I contend that when Jesus said forgive them, that God did forgive them. And that he did, because he had determined it from the beginning, that he did forgive the crucifixion of Christ so that he could establish the kingdom later on. I think that's the best understanding of it. Forgiven when you, as a people. Forgiven as a people, not forgiven as individuals. Right. right. I, I should be careful to say that. And thank you, Jeff. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, how will you escape the fires of hell? Uh, yeah, he was condemning those particular individuals, yeah. But as a nation, as a people group, they had to be forgiven for there to be any promise of a forthcoming kingdom. Does that make sense? Yes. Good. Good question. Anything else? We're done? Yes. Okay, then say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.